0: Welcome, Busy, to our conversation today. Welcome to Radical Strategies.
1: Exciting to be here, excited to be here.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Well, to start off, um, how about we have you introduce yourself to our audience and uh, yeah, they can learn more about what you do and might have something to do with those two machines behind you.
1: <laughs> well, my name is Bizi Ezerioja, um, strange name for most Americans where i'm from it's not very strange i am nigerian i have a company here in ontario california we can see an array of vehicles behind me where we take cars that are somewhat exciting and make them absolutely spectacular so we do a lot of engineering design um i have this great affinity for the beauty of old classic vehicles especially like the old group five boxy style
0: automobiles
1: (laughs) But I'm not a huge fan of old technology. So I can appreciate the beauty of car designs in the past. And I tend to merge them with modern tech. And that's my thing.
0: Fantastic. Radical strategies tends to be focused on creativity and creative careers. Hmm. And in my mind, you are a creative person. Absolutely. With your career, meaning that um, you imagine things and then you bring them into the world. And you're also taking these creations and in this case uh custom cars electric cars um and you are creating content you're also someone that's in front of the camera quite a bit whether you're fronting tv shows or your own live stream so we should get into that right. as well um, I'd love to. so to start out i'd love for people to hear your story and how you got started and what those first steps were
1: okay no worries it's quite a long story but I'll make it as, as as condensed as possible without leaving any good juicy stuff out. Mm. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm Nigerian. I come, uh, I was born into a very scientifically oriented family. Um, mm. My father is a geologist who moved on to get his doctorate. My mother is a very accomplished biochemist and uh, I'm their first child, one of six, first child, first son. And they tell me this story about how my first word, unlike well, most babies who could say dada or mama, my first word was car, <laughs> which is strange. And, <laughs> and weird was the second word was light, which I couldn't believe because fast forward to today, I'm so much into EV technology, mm. but I always love to say, they couldn't understand, what is you saying? Car something. Oh, car light. Because at night, every time a car goes by, I say car light, car light. Anyway. So I've always had this, this, this appreciation for cars from, 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 infancy. And uh, wow, because of my parents' influence, being scientists, I'm very, very keen on academia. I did quite a bit in my youth. Uh, my parents were big on studying hard, having impeccable grades, like most African parents are, very strict. Um, I didn't have much of a social life, didn't participate in any sports. It was all about studying. Mm. and you know i knew i wanted to study something in the pure and applied sciences i want to be a physicist but my parents who owned a cosmetics company in most african fashion wanted me to take over the family business Mm -hmm. when i got older so my mother wanted me to be a chemist but i wanted to be a physicist because i I had affinity for things mechanical and i love physics was my favorite subject growing up just loved it Uh, i remember in high school there was a a book by rt nelkin um and uh, it was like pure and applied physics. And I loved that book. I knew every, I solved every problem in this book, knew every page of it, could recite everything. Could, it was just, I loved everything about physics, you know. Wow, the study of matter in relation to energy. I remember that. It was just something I had affinity for. But my parents said, hey, physics, physics is great, but what could you, you can't do much with that. So as a compromise, huh? I decided to study chemical engineering. So mm-hmm. it satisfied my parents' Desire for me to have something that's chemistry related, even though it wasn't my favorite subject, mm. but also because I had affinity for things mechanical, You had the engineering component to it, which is great. And by the way, end up being the best curriculum I could study in my country. And it's still the case today. Um, to enter university, to study a good curriculum, to have a good discipline can be quite difficult. You have to have very high marks in this thing known as YAIC. Um, and jam this joint admissions matriculation board examination. Um, you have to have very high marks to get into an engineering program, law, medicine, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I noticed a lot of my uncles and aunties who want to study science the sciences will take the exam once a year. If you fail, you have to wait another year to take it. They were having a really, really hard time passing this. So people are entering university, you know, much later in life because mm-hmm. you know it's just very difficult to get into. So I decided to take this examination when I was 14, not because I want to go to university at the age of 14, but because I want to get a feel for the examination and see how it is. So when I Hmm. got to the American equivalent of 12th grade, I could take the exam and and, and pass with flying colors and get in at a good time. Well, I registered for this exam at 14, um, studied extremely hard for it, took the examination and Rod, I passed. What? To enter university for petrochemical engineering, which is a wow. big deal. It was, all the, it was on all the papers and, and, and all, the, all the television shows then because no one had ever entered university that young. So at the age of 15, when the results came out, I was in Anambra state university of technology studying petrochemical, petrochemical engineering to the excitement of my parents and the pride as well. Wow. And it was terrifying for me because I'm, you know, I'm this young guy, and you know, I, because some of my cousins were there studying engineering, and all these older people, and it was, just, it was exciting nonetheless. Um, mm-hmm. But unfortunately, Rod, unfortunately, or fortunately, we didn't have the technology in West Africa, so the books we were studying were from the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, the tech wasn't there. One component I left out about my parents' academia is that they went to school here in the U.S. Yeah, um, before they went back home to continue their business and. Since I didn't learn much back home, I decided to follow suit. I begged my parents say, we're not learning anything here. America has the best technology in terms of engineering. I need to go to school there to be the best I could be mm-hmm. to reapply really my knowledge towards the family business. And my yeah. parents agreed. Yeah. So um, in 1989, <laughs> with two suitcases, my father couldn't escort me because he had to go to Italy to buy some machinery for the factory. Mm-hmm. My mom had to stay, stay home, at, at, back home and, and take care of the factory as well locally. I had two suitcases, and I was escorted to uh, the international airport in Port Harcourt, and came to the U.S. to LAX. Wow! Um, at the time, yeah, there's a family who, you know, sidebar. My dad came here to America on a scholarship with Gulf Oil. Remember mm-hmm. Gulf, the old Porsche stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how my dad got a scholarship coming here to study geology. He met a family who was in the oil business the Lancasters Mm -hmm. and this family was a family that took him in and he had a great relationship with them, did some business with them, worked for them quite a while. They were waiting for me at LAX with a sign that said BC. So I came off the plane and here I am, this family who I didn't know
0: Mm -hmm.
1: picking me up and taking me to Whittier, California to live with them as I go to school for my academia. So here I am now 16 here in the United States to study engineering. And here's where it gets interesting, Rob. I'm here in America, in America. Never worked before in my life, ever. Mm-hmm. But I had this bright idea. I had this bright idea. We talked about this when you and I first met. I felt the need to create my own path without the influence of my father. Mm-hmm. Now, some people may say, what does that mean? Um, back home, and it still occurs today. Unfortunately, in West Africa, there's really, at least in my country, there's really no middle class. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sad. It's either you're very comfortable or you have nothing at all. Mm-hmm. So I was fortunate enough that my family was comfortable. And I really had everything I wanted growing up. I really had a good childhood. Yeah. But it, it does do something to you as, as, as a young individual. You always have this need to kind of prove yourself. Mm-hmm. So when I came to America, I had the opportunity and the bright idea to say, hey, I'm going to prove myself and not get help from my parents. So I called my father. I remember so vividly. I was in the kitchen of the Lancasters in Whittier. I called my father on his phone. I said, Dad, don't send me any more resources. I'm gonna take care of myself. And he started laughing at me. He started laughing at me. Okay, no, I'm like, I need that, I really would. And I said, I'm not gonna take it. And he kept sending resources, but I just signed it over to the Lancasters and I just Mm -hmm. stopped taking his money. And I got my first job at Carls Jr. So my first job ever was at Carls Junior restaurant. I remember the manager wes put me on the drive-through for an hour and took me off because people didn't understand my accent when Uh, i repeated the order yeah so he put me to dining room duty which is cool but i I came to realize how difficult it was to really fend for myself and to work Mm -hmm. it was very difficult i mean i cried as a teenager i was crying like this thing is very difficult i ever had to do this um i didn't have any resources it was hard to even make 200 um i was just trying to buy a car it was almost impossible Mm -hmm. And that led me... So, so why am I telling you this story, Rod, and, and your viewers' this story? Because it led me to a life that I could never imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, the Lancasters ended up moving to Wyoming. For those of you who don't know, Wyoming is a very nice, warm part of the United States. No, I'm joking. It's horribly cold in All Jacksonville, right. Wyoming. And I was still going to school here. You know, I was taking some classes at Cerritos Community College, some classes at Cal State Long Beach. And I had to stay here. So my father, knowing that I had to leave, Um, said, oh, BC, don't worry. Don't fret. I have another family that are very close to me in the United States, in the LA area. It's a very nice Jewish community. Mm -hmm. You'll love it there. The place is beautiful. The family is awesome. Um, I haven't visited them in a while, but they're just magnificent people. Um, Mrs. Jones, she she really embraced African culture and just an amazing woman. I think you'll love her. And I said, sure, I'll go live with them. Guess where this Jewish community was? Guess what city? Mm. Well, guess L.A. Jewish community. Just Hollywood. Guess. Good guess, Compton. Compton, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I guess in the '60s, <laughs> Compton was a big Jewish community. I didn't huh. know that. Right. And, my, and my guardian, my guardian, Mrs. Jones, I refer to as my guardian, my grandmother, finally, my American grandmother, is one of those women who just wouldn't leave. No matter what happens to her neighborhood, she bought this house. This is her her neighborhood. She's mm-hmm. not leaving. Mm-hmm. Mind you, this is now the early 90s, um, you know, doing the riots and all kind of madness going on. Yeah, um, the, the, the
0: gang culture was at a height oh, at yeah. that time. Yeah. I, at I, P. Lived, P. I lived in L.A. at that time, too. It was definitely very was different crazy. to the way it is now. <laughs> it is. Yeah.
1: So why, why is that important? Because um, I got exposed to a very interesting culture. I now, I now left, of course, I had to leave Cars junior. Got a job at a circuit city that was nearby mm-hmm. there. And at this time, you know, I want to buy a car, okay? I want to get my first car, and I wanted an MR2. I remember looking at magazines back in Nigeria, and MR2 is beautiful. It's a sexy wedge-style two-seater, mm-hmm. beautiful car. I had to get this MR2, but, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't afford the AW11. I couldn't afford it. It was just expensive for me then. There's another car that looked like it, and, Rod, it was amazing, right? Beautiful wedge-shaped two-seater, sexy sporty vehicle, the Pontiac Fiero. I like, oh, I must have this car. It's gorgeous. <laughs> it's like an MR2, but not quite, but it's fiberglass. It's-
0: I used to love those on- when I was a teenager. I
1: love me too. And Rob, yeah. call me crazy. I still like I may pick one up and convert to electric or something. I may, oh, I may pick one yeah. up. That'd be a pretty that'd be a pretty cool project, right? But that's funny, but you know, this is pre-internet, pre-google, mm. pre, you know, all these reviews. So I bought this book called Consumer Reports, and I was reading it, and De Fiero had horrible reviews particularly in terms of reliability with catching on mm-hmm. fire and reliability and maintenance and all this stuff. But there was a car that was recommended in Leo of that, and that was a Honda CRX. Mm. I'm like, this, this is a car to get. The HF model is high fuel efficiency. I'm a student. I'm an engineering student. I can appreciate that. So um, I opted to getting a Honda CRX to allow me to uh, you know, explore my need for reliable transportation. As I worked in Circuit City, it was interesting. There was a gentleman who was in a uh, uh, consumer electronics installation, another person in home electronics, and we were hired at the same time. The guy with home electronics, uh, you know him, James Johnson, good friend of mine now, he had an RX-7. He hmm. had an early RX-7, 13B, street port, Holly carburetors, just, just decked up with, with Epsilon wheels from Japan. Beautiful car sounded great. And he used to race in the back. Was another friend, uh, Karen King had a Mazda 626 turbo that he modified, and these guys used to street race. Yeah, so they kind of exposed me to this mm. wonderful world of street racing. Now, something else happened at the same time. I'm sorry, my story is going longer because there's so much I'm giving you just the <laughs> nuggets here because there's so much <laughs> happened. When I got my CRX, of course, I'm in the engineering department and I get to see other CRXs with mugen exhaust systems lowered you know beautiful ssr wheels um there's some guys with the fx 16 toyota corollas all these nice cars with these engineering students and i'm like oh my god i want my car to look like that so i started looking up places to modify my car so i i i looked through the yellow pages because we had then there's a place called san andres in orange county i drove there Things were expensive. There's Another place, Toy Sport in Gardena. They sold most Toyota stuff, but they had a few Honda stuff here and there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I bought some of these option magazines from there to read and look at all these parts and I'm really by headers. But I didn't understand the technology. I didn't understand. I love cars. Okay. I saw I had friends who loved racing, but I didn't know what to do or how those components allowed me to go faster. So at San Andreas, I bought this book known as the Honda Performance Handbook. And it's all about Honda performance with the earlier first gen Acura Integra 8689 that Mugen or King Motorsports in the United States in Milwaukee built. A lot about Oscar Jackson and his racing, his road racing escapades. And it was just, I just, this is my Bible. So I learned about camshafts, how they work, valve springs, headers, intake manifolds, carburetors, what Mugen did, where Mugen made 210 horsepower on a D16. I'm like, oh my God, 210 horsepower. I barely make 78 horsepower. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. I was, I was, but it wasn't enough. Reading wasn't enough. So I started going to local speed shops. There are quite a few. You know, There was G-Speed and Gardena. The guys at Toy Sport. People just, there was this common theme. Well, Rod, people wouldn't help. Hmm. Yes, I could drop off my car and get it worked on. But no one would tell me what they're going to do or why. Why is a hmm. header important? Okay, it makes power, but why? Why is an intake important? Why is a filter important? Why are camshafts ideal? Was a good cam Was a big. Is, is two twelve duration better than two thirty? Why not go two sixty? It's better. I mean, it's, it's just nothing. Until once again in the back of this book, it had an index of shops that helped with the with the, with the, with the with the with the, collection of data for this for this this lovely text. And one was advanced engine management in Compton. I'm like, wait, I live in Compton. Mm. I'm gonna go to at a.m. And I go there, they're closed, but they moved to Gardena, perfect. I go there and I met a gentleman by the name of John Conciari, he was the founder. And I asked him the same questions and he took me under his wing. He taught me about induction. He loved the fact that I was an engineering student and he was an accomplished mechanical engineer. He went to Cal Poly Pomona. I went to Cal- I'm going to Cal State Long Beach from the Cal State system. So he really took the time to teach me a lot about technology. And fast forward to today, Earlier on you mentioned about my, my weekly you know, uh, 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 live stream. I do that every Tuesday on Instagram to give back, hmm. to be that person I needed when I was younger, to do what John Consali did for me for the entire planet. So I mm-hmm. have people from all around the world where they can ask me any question about technology, anything I've done, I don't hide anything. It could be this car, that, anything, I share it. And some people say, BC, why do you do that? Are you giving away your secrets? That's the beauty of technology. The beauty of technology, Rod, is that it continues to evolve. What I mm-hmm. know today is amazing compared to what I knew a year ago. What I four years ago, I didn't know anything about electric performance at all. But look at me now. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking on the advances of motorsports performance and mobility in terms of, you know, electric vehicles and propulsion. So it's like, it, it's 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 what I love about tech. Anyway, going back to you know, the 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 accumulation of data. John Conciardi took me under his wing and then he knew I was kind of the guy who loved to experiment. So the very first cam gear ever made by AEM came to me, I put it on my, on my CRX. The very first code air intake that ever existed was because of John Conciardi's direction. I put it on my CRX and I thought I was the fastest thing on the planet with my exhaust, my intake and my you know, knowledge of cam gears and moving around power bands and all that fun mm. stuff. And I remember going on John Conciardi's, uh dyno. I was making a whopping 82 horsepower to the wheels. And I thought I was so fast. Because once again, I had an HF model, which is a 1.5 liter A valve. Not a very powerful one. Less power than the SI. Two things happened to me that really made me go crazy. And allow me, Rod, to be able to share, you these, share these stories with you. One, I was in the VEC, um, which is a, the engineering center at Long Beach State, the parking lot Luckily for us engineering students, parking is never a problem because people don't tend to study engineering. So if you go to business administration, it's always full. Cool. You can never find parking. But engineering, oh, plenty kind of parking, mm-hmm. empty parking lot. One evening, um, <laughs> one evening I um was leaving the campus and saw this CRX next to me. It was a black CRX Si. You know those guys that, you know, pull up to you in a light and start revving at you? Mm-hmm. That was I. That was one mm-hmm. of those guys. Mm-hmm. I thought it was the fastest thing in the world. Also because I just got a new exhaust on my car.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And this exhaust came to be, I'm going to do a slight sidebar very quickly, sidebar. One day I got up, leaving my garden's house, going to school. I started my car and I heard this emanating from the back of my car. I'm like, what is this noise? I don't like it, but I kind of like it. It's weird. I know it's not right. I drove to school anyway, a little embarrassed, a little excited. <laughs> and I guess I had a perforation in my exhaust. My exhaust had just corroded and I had a perforation in it. Mm-hmm. So there's a Honda dealership in Gardena, Gardena Honda. I went there. They want to charge me, let's say, $700 to put a new exhaust on. I'm like, that's too much money. I can't afford that. I'm a student. Impossible. There's a muffler shop that was down the street from my residence, and it was called Supreme Muffler. And they said, hey, I think it was for like less than 100 bucks. They can put this exhaust on called mm-hmm. a Dynamax Autoflow. We'll just put exhaust on there, and it'll fix it. And it'll sound better and it's cheaper. Do it. So he did it. A couple of hours later, they had me pull it off the rack. I saw the car. Oh my God. It was like, that is nice, deep tone. I'm like, oh my God, I love this car. It sounds so good. And Rod, I drove it. It felt like I had 100 horsepower. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. my car completely transformed. So I had this great sound and this power. And like, oh my God, my car is so much better. I love it. I love it. So that even made me get deeper into exhaust technology to find out mm-hmm. why this happened. Anyway. I'm at school, VEC center, getting ready to go home, see this black CRX. These three girls, mind you, CRX is two seater right? These three girls get in the car. They pull out. And it looks like she had it lowered, nice wheels, nice exhaust. Mm-hmm. I see them. I rev on them. And she's like, what's up? I'm like, what's up? <laughs> we line up in the back of the parking lot. We line up.
0: Were, they, were, were all the girls in the car?
1: All three in the car. Okay. One front seat, driver, passenger seat, and in the middle, like in the back. Yeah, yeah, right?
0: the little shelf there, yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. We take off. Rod, she spanked me. Like, when I say <laughs> spanked, her SI, I think they were at the end, stopped, and I'm still going. Like, they just <laughs> decimated me, right? And then the, the girls, they get out of the car, they're laughing at me. I'm all embarrassed. I'm like, okay, good run. And I drive home embarrassed. Mm-hmm. And I swore, Rod, at that moment, I swore I would be the fastest CRX on the planet, the fastest single cam in the world. That's my mm-hmm. goal. I'm going to do it. That's what pushed me. <laughs> we go to work, Circuit City. I go to my friends, James and Taryn, like, hey, I need to learn how to race. I want to go, my, I want to race, I want to race my car. All right. So they take me to Terminal Island in Long Beach. There's a racetrack out there called the Brotherhood Raceway. Uh, for the old school guys who are into racing, street racing, they know all about it. Mm-hmm. And I kept practicing. Terrence spanked me at that track, but I kept learning. So my first run was 16.7. That's how slow I was. Whoa. For those of you who don't know, that's super. I don't even know. It was so slow. And a part of that was my driving or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. I kept racing there and gradually, 15s, low 15s, high 14s, mid 14s. Actually, I went faster and faster while modifying my car, and my need for speed started getting better and better. I met people like Peter Yem, um, Archie Gerano, um, Nate, who now, he, I saw him at your last event, who now works for uh, Porsche at Motorsports. I met him there as well, Nathan. Um, I, met, I met, wow, I met uh, Max Ha there, all these old school guys, Abel Ibarra, Stephen Papadakis. I remember he was there with his black EG, really slow. I mean, him and I raced a couple of times, spanked him. He had a really slow EG. Um, uh, who, was, who was there? Uh, I don't know if I mentioned Max Hauer already. Xavier Ingram. Um, quite a few individuals. Um, just, just, just a great place. But then that area would race during the daytime. It was open Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But they closed about maybe 7 p.m. And then at night, another type of racing started happening. There were places in Compton, in Wilmington, in Long Beach, in Sylmar, where people would participate in these illegal street races. And it was safe for us. We didn't have any mishaps, but extremely lucrative from a financial perspective. Mm. And um, Rod, that environment changed my life. When I say changed my life, it did. Mm. So imagine a world where I get to go to a proper racetrack, practice all I want, experiment, get better times. And then come the darkness of night, we get to go to industrial areas of Compton, of Compton Boulevard and Susanna Street in Wilmington. And right off the, you know, the, uh, what is that? The, off the, the 14 and 5 interchange in Sylmar. The, and the infamous
0: uh, Maria yeah. Street, right?
1: Well, Maria, of course. Yeah. yeah. Maria, Susanna, those streets. I mean, you'd go there in the morning and it's just black marks all on the ground it's just huge Mm. it's and we'd never control you know rumor had it not even rumor it was well known that even some police officers were out there racing for there was big money out there Mm. big money out there and it it got so crazy and i kept doing so well and i didn't do well because i was the fastest car on the planet because i wouldn't dare race bugs or some of those rx3s or r100s that were just out of control able i mean i wouldn't race able but Mm-hmm. There are certain individuals, certain you know, water cooled VWs, other Hondas, Acuras, you know, so and so forth, Toyotas that I would race. I did a very good job at monitoring my competition, seeing what they did, how they launched, how they drove. A lot of my racing was won by getting into people's heads. I'd play, you know, head games. I probably wouldn't stop my car, or I'll just shut it off before we run. I'll take my time to get to the line. I'll do all these kind of mind games to really mm-hmm. get people unnerved. And I'd win races races over races over that. As a matter of fact, there's one in particular where I won $5,000. I'm talking about $5,000 in 90s money Mm -hmm. in one race. And that pretty much put me through the school. That funded me many, many months. It was so much money. And if you want to compare what $5,000 then is, think of gas prices. That's when we used to pay $1.09 for for 91. So if you think about how much gas is now, that's equivalent, dare I say, to almost $30,000 in today's money. It was a lot of money for me then. And it really just changed my life. Now I wouldn't condone, I don't condone street racing. I did see a mishap in Ontario where someone passed away. And um, that kind of made me stop cold Turkey, stop racing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got into racing properly on the track alone. And that opened a new chapter in my life where I started getting noticed by OEMs. And I'll stop there for now, because I've said so much.
0: We can see how all this activity, street racing, et cetera, led you yeah. down a, quite a different pathway. And it's funny how life does it's that good. sometimes. Mm-hmm. You may start out with certain plans, uh, but right. the reality of living day-to-day, working through things, experiencing life, mm-hmm. may take you in a f- different direction, which is quite That's cool true. to see. Um, how did that end up with the establishment of your company? How did that lead to busy mode of starting up? And just this life that you had where you're building custom cars and you're building custom cars for clients as well. It became right. your
1: income. Absolutely. Now think back to the late eighties, early nineties, there were no big performance companies. You couldn't come to a B-Somoda and have a car built. Um, there was no broad internet or forums where you can, you know, do what they call nowadays research. I mean, I don't refer to it as research, but I'll just go with the common, common theme of the day or the common language of today where people do research to be able to know what parts to get. Back then, we had to create our own parts. We had to make our own parts. You had to kind of figure things out. I mentioned earlier about Bugin making 210. I ended up making, with my D-Series, 278 to the wheels, which is north of 300, with my own setup. And that's learning from the V8 guys. And speaking of V8s, since we didn't have valve springs, something as simple as valve springs available, I use inner springs from V8s as my valve springs for my setup. So being able to think out of the box, to take knowledge from those who have hot water before us and apply similar concepts and take it to a next level with Sport Compact, creating allowed me the opportunity to push forward and continue to experiment. And here's a great thing about motorsports. You go to a track, you run 14.5. The next week, you run 14.1. People take notice, like, what did you do different? Oh, I have this new exhaust system I designed just to try out, and it worked. I put a Venturi in my collector and I picked up three tens. Oh my God, could you make one for me as well? Oh, sure. And that's how it started. Hmm. It started by me experimenting on my car, sometimes going backwards. Actually, let me correct myself. 80% of my experiments failed, Rod. Hmm. I mean it. Eight out of 10 of my experiments <laughs> failed, many times spectacularly. But I got encouraged. I had that perseverance and that desire to succeed. So that 20% of when it succeeded, allowed me to do well. Now, Nowadays, it's almost reversed. 80% of my experiments succeed because of my my knowledge base. But about 20% of the time, I still have some challenges. So that being said, that allowed me just people, word of mouth, people observing what I'm doing pushed me there. And I enjoyed creating. I enjoyed improving. And that's how BC Motor came about. As a matter of fact, the name BC Motor was a nickname given to me at the street races because I rarely lost, rarely. And my engines never expired. They're like, oh, my God, BC's motors, he's motors man, BC, your motors are great. BC's motor, BC motor. And he just stuck BC motor. I'm like, okay, I'm not some old (laughs) Japanese guy. It's just, I'm just, it's just a nickname that was given to me at the street races. Hmm. So that's how that came to be. So I've always had that knack of of really thinking out the box creating, even as a student in engineering, I always questioned a lot of concepts that were in school for us. Um, Many of, everything we learned was just accumulation of experiences and experimentation from people ahead of us. And many times, they are not many scientists are not very thorough so i was that contrarian in school that some professors enjoyed a lot of them hated Um, but that need to learn that need to experiment is what drove me to do what i do today and being the fact that i had that engineering background in chemical engineering which was a great curriculum by the way because to be a chemical engineer you have to take sections from different disciplines of engineering if chemical engineers have to design a chemical plant they have to of course understand chemistry they have to understand mechanical engineering because, you know, of course, the components in there are mechanical in nature. They have to understand engineering economics because you don't want to blow your budget trying to build this facility. They have to just, you know, understand um, civil engineering because of the structures around, safety engineering. I mean, you have to kind of take a little bit from everything. And because we had to take a lot from mechanical engineering in particular, fluid dynamics, thermodynamics, heat and mass transfer, all that stuff. And that knowledge allowed me to have this background that I can now incorporate in my engineering designs for my race car or my you know my track car. And then wow, I'm becoming a better builder than most teams out there. I mean, it wasn't fair rod. I had to compete against a lot of shade tree mechanics and guys who just love tinkering because of my background. But many times I'd had to race against you know manufacturers. I mean, I remember NHRA when they went to the Sport Compact Explode series.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Some really funny things happened when I had to go against Dodge and I was faster than Dodge in their natural aspirated set up there with their neon and some really funky things happened where I was eliminated from competition before I had to race them. So it's the noting here that story. you're,
0: you're now talking yeah. about you being a professional drag racer. If you'd graduated yeah. mm-hmm. from shoe Absolutely. racing by this time.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, when I saw a mishap in Ontario and started racing properly, I was approached by a scout from American Honda and they saw how I carried myself, how I interacted with the public. I'm not one of those racers that locks myself off with, with banners or little mm-hmm. ribbons. I'm very open. How I am today, anyone can come up to me and talk to me about technology. I did that mm-hmm. at the races, and people took notice. So it's approached by American Honda to race for them in a the semi-pro capacity. And fast forward to 2010, they said, hey, BC, you love CRXs? We have a CRX replacement that we want you to use your expertise of figuring things out to make very exciting for the masses. And mm-hmm. that was the CRZ, which is mm-hmm. still over there in the corner, by the way. So I built my very first project car with American Honda, CRZ, which ended up being a 533-horsepower project, which New York Times covered, um, USA Today. It just blew up, and I started getting other manufacturers taking notice, and I started building cars for OEMs for major auto shows from then on.
0: We know that the story of the car right now is changing rapidly, and there's this whole mass situation happening in the auto industry of shifting towards electric vehicles, and it's something that Mm -hmm. you're very passionate about. Yeah, I'd I'd love for you to touch upon that and just tell us a bit more about your purpose and where you're going with electrification of cars. Sounds good.
1: Rod, you've known me for over a decade and you know I've been a diehard petrol head. And four years ago, you couldn't pay me to sit, let alone drive an EV. I had no interest in them. I thought EVs were for tree huggers, people with hemp sandals. I just didn't want anything to do with it. I thought it wasn't sexy at all, had no performance potential. Until I noticed going to CES, because I built a car for Harman Kardon, one of our accounts. I went to see and yes, noticed all my partners, all my OEM partners, American Honda, Hyundai, Ford, Porsche, they're all moving towards identification. And I felt if I want to stay relevant in this industry, I need to find a way of exploring this technology and may, maybe making it a little bit performance-oriented, maybe making it my own. So I decided to build this, this EV vehicle. And there's a Porsche 935 that I decided to use as a body, the perfect body, because it's exciting, it's sexy, it's boxy, it's just everything I find appealing. And for those individuals who wouldn't care about electrification, they may, if they see a platform that awesome, driving around with such technology in it. So that's what I did. And Rod, the first time I drove this thing, 636 horsepower, 475 kilowatts, torque is over 700 pounds for the torque. It blew my mind it was i almost urinated on myself behind the shop here <laughs> it was so exciting and rod you've driven it it's an amazing car mm-hmm. and overnight i was transformed into this ev advocate now i want to give you a little bit of background just very brief background of that the whole time i drove petrol cars i always had this guilt i'm serious i always did as a chemical engineer i understand the you know the the, the components of combustion Mm-hmm. Understanding oxides of nitrogen and, and sulfur I was putting in the atmosphere. I, it was so important to me that I converted all my cars to alcohol. It was better, but still not ideal. Mm-hmm. And in California, it's very difficult with cars that are manufactured after 1975 to get emissions, make them emissions-friendly. The EV, a performance world, is a solution. It allows me to eat my cake and have it too. My 935 is street legal. It has zero emissions completely. It's so much fun. It's satisfied. It ticks all my boxes. And as a racer, as I got into road racing and tarmac racing, call me crazy, Rod. I say this a lot, but most people don't understand until they experience it themselves. I feel more connected to the tarmac when I'm driving my electric performance vehicles. Hmm. Somehow the the, the the petrol engine, the gasoline engine tends to nullify or, 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 or dampen the feedback from the brakes and the tires and the pebbles hitting the fire, you know bodywork it's not completely quiet there's a supercharger whine to it so those mm. of you may do a, a search on, on on the BC Motor K3V you'll see videos of me driving or or Jay Leno driving it you hear this 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 nice mechanical whine like a supercharger the sound is there but it's not as 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 muting it's not as mm. as invasive as a petrol sound and vibration it's just you feel more connection with the road steering feedback pedals tires this entire feedback you feel and hear it, but it's it's weird. I can't explain it. You have to drive a performance EV to understand what I'm saying. So, what has it done for me now? I have a slew of customers all around the world who send me cars, especially vehicles of of historical significance, to convert to EVs because they can also eat their cake and have it too. Imagine mm. a Porsche 930 that could be making 380 horsepower, and all of a sudden I convert it to this 600 horsepower electrified setup, zero emissions, with more torque they can shake a stick at so it's great and nowadays that more governments and municipals are being more friendly towards evs it's a win-win for everyone involved you have a vehicle with very small emissions if you're like myself and you're into you know smart cities and sustainability you can maybe have a solar system at your home so you don't have to you know rely on the grid to be able to charge it it's just i'm smiling now because i'm so excited about what we're Mm. doing now and what the future holds for me and my peers so excited
0: One last thing for you to talk about is how you started being a content creator, how you started presenting yourself on social media. Uh, You have quite a following, and I'd love to hear (laughs) about your steps into that and maybe get some advice from you.
1: My steps into content creation really came from a need that I saw existed, but just came to me naturally, and that's to teach. Um, Technology is very exciting, um, doesn't have to be boring. And what I've seen out there in terms of content falls into two buckets. One is either extremely entertaining and has no educational value whatsoever. Burnout, smoking, shooting flames, fire, so on and so forth, dancing, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Or the other side where it's very educational, has lots of information, but is so boring. Mm-hmm. So I have this mindset of what I refer to as edutainment, where it's mm-hmm. educational entertaining. So of course I'll shoot flames, but I'll talk about what anti-lag does and why it's important. Of course I'll do burnouts with an EV, but why is that even needed? Launch mm. control, why is that important? I did a whole series under the Discovery Channel called Motor Mythbusters where we did the same thing. We took things that are in popular automotive culture and tried to dispel them as myths or secure them as something as fact. And that once again took a creative, educational twist on something that's also extremely exciting and entertaining. So, that's how I grew my my following, is by providing entertainment that also educates. It expands your mind by keeping you engaged.
0: What is your advice for someone who's starting out who would like to present their personalities and whatever their discipline is on social and gain a following? Because in... I believe that it's part of the job now that if you want to be someone that's doing things in the world, you need to present yourself. It's just part of having a career. So what advice would you have for us, for anyone that's starting out?
1: Advice I'd have is, you know, as I live by example, is to be yourself. It's very easy to fall into the trap of trying to copy others and emulate what the big ones are doing. But just be yourself and stay persistent. Now, I'm living this. My first live stream had two people which I think one of them was my mom. <laughs> so <laughs> after a while, I dropped out to one person. Mm. But now I get thousands of people every week coming to see me. So it's like that persistence. I've been doing this for almost four years now, every Tuesday at noon on Instagram Live. Also paying attention to trends. And when I want to say trends on what the social networks are doing. The whole thing now are reels. Mm-hmm. Not too long ago, it was stories. Before that, it was even posting very creative content on just regular posts. But now it's real. So Being able to have that whole TikTok feel to yourself, but staying true to yourself goes a long way in allowing you to take advantage of the algorithm, but also getting an audience that will, by all means, embrace you because you're staying true to yourself. If you're fake, people see through it, stay true to yourself and you will succeed. Stay persistent and you will persevere and succeed as well.
0: Well, thank you, BC. Fantastic conversation. Uh, Last question for you. Uh, What is your radical strategy of the day? What's your final piece of advice for us?
1: Uh, Well, you know, to take things positively, really is. Um, Hmm. Life would dish out (laughs) amazing things to you. Some positive, many not so positive. But you always look at the silver lining of things. You may not understand why you're going through certain trials and tribulations at the moment. But if you stay focused and persevere and look for the silver lining, it'll come to light. And you'll find out that the universe has something positive for you, for you to best be the best that you could be and to succeed as well. So I live this to the core. People won't believe what I go through on a weekly basis, but I stay positive and it comes to pass and I come up on the other side better than ever. So that's my radical strategy.
0: All right, well, thank you, BC. Fantastic <laughs> conversation.